age of the so-called ius commune was very prolific for innovative legal visions. Some of them had a very long story. The medieval jurists found a solution to frame rights and relationships at law, and those solutions became a shared heritage of legal knowledge for centuries, sometimes until today. Other legal constructions went more or less forgotten. Some were harshly debated among the scholars. The use of the dialectical method, gathering authoritative arguments for the possible solution of a case, determined a mixture of the different complexes of laws that formed the system. To support an idea, the good lawyer had to be able to delve into Roman law, canon law and feudal law texts in search of the best arguments. This produced a real mixture of principles having different origins, and from this mixture arose a number of important legal concepts, some of which we use still today. Take, for example, the personality of non-human entities. In the Roman law, as presented by Justinian, the subjects of rights were almost only human individuals. Only in a couple of cases, the law acknowledged personal rights to other entities. At public law, there was the imperial fiscus that was presented as owner of goods and money. Also, the cities had some properties. But at private law, it was very difficult to assign properties and rights to abstract entities, as it is the case today, let alone the idea that those entities could make agreements, conclude contracts and act on the market as if they were human subjects who can express a will. The problem was that since the age of Constantine, there were a number of non-human entities which were increasingly gathering a vast amount of money and land. The churches, the monasteries, other so-called pie cause, which today are still called charities at English law, had got a great share of the land in Western Europe. They had vassals, dependent peasants, they received grants, they made contracts of lease. But all this was very difficult to frame at law if you had to respect the rules of Roman law gathered in the digest. At canon law, on the contrary, the rights of the ecclesiastical institutions were foreseen. When the legal culture merged together canon law and Roman law, the jurists used a Roman law concept to frame the legal personality of the churches. At Roman law, in fact, there were plenty of cases in which the force of the law could create a fictive reality. The adoption created 
filiation where it did not exist. The civil death pretended that one who was alive was dead, and so on for dozens of fictions. To pretend that an entity was a legal subject comparable to a person, a great canonist, Sinibaldo Fieschi, who became later Pope Innocent IV, introduced the idea of a persona ficta, a fake, artificial person who could act as if it was a human subject. To express its will, a persona ficta had a representative, a person who spoke in the name of the institution he represented. This is what happens still today, when you have a chief executive officer who is entitled to manage the property of a company and to conclude contracts in its name. At the time, it was an abbot, a bishop, or another officer in charge who could act in the name of the church by respecting the decisions taken by a council of advisors who formed the will of the institution by voting. Also, the principle of majority was introduced in the late Middle Ages to deal with the case of different opinions in the council. Invented to frame at law the economical activities of the churches, this system applied soon to other entities, the corporations, made of laymen gathered to protect their interests. One of those corporations was the university itself. Others were the unions of workers. Still others were commercial companies, often built on a customary base. But also, very basic legal concepts were shaped for the first time in the age of the Ius Commune. Another example, the whole set of principles which rule the court procedure was formed merging elements of the Roman process with rules embedded in the canon law. The opening of a trial with written documents carrying the requests of the plaintiff, the term given to the respondent to prepare his defence, the summoning of the parties and the witnesses. Another example, the use of dispossession procedures for a very large set of rights, much larger than the few cases foreseen by Roman law. Considering every kind of personal rights as possible possessions opened the field to the configuration of a market of obligations in which one can grant, sell and buy obligatory rights. This would have been impossible for Roman law, for which possession can exist only when a human subject owns a material object but the extension of possession to those immaterial rights had immense consequences for the development of the modern economy.